You're listening to The Rights Pod, a podcast by the Center for Human Rights and International Justice at Stanford University. Hi, my name is Kira Jasper, and I am studying history and the law and minoring in human rights at Stanford. The conversation that you're about to listen to came together a few weeks ago, almost by coincidence. I was scrolling through stories on my Instagram when I clicked on Delaney Hurley's story. We had met a few years ago because we both lived in the Balkans for 10 months before college. I lived in Macedonia while she lived in Bulgaria. The short clip that she uploaded was of Veni, who was also joining this episode, laughing as Delaney surprised him with a Christmas present three years ago. The next clip showed a drastically different scene. Policemen, armed in riot gear, pinning down protesters like Veni while spraying pepper spray into their eyes. The video disgusted me for many reasons, but it left me with two questions. First, why were protesters being attacked by the police? And second, why hadn't I heard about this on the news? Daily protests began in Bulgaria's capital, Sofia, on July 7th, though latent problems of corruption and suppression of opposition have been present since even before Bulgaria joined the European Union in 2007. There have been countless allegations that the mafia has close ties to the current government under Prime Minister Bokyo Borosov. In sitting down with Deveni and Delaney, we'll be discussing why these protests erupted, who is joining them, how the international community has responded, and what this could mean for Bulgaria's and Europe's future. Thank you both so much again for agreeing to be on this podcast and talk a bit about the uh, protests that have been happening in Bulgaria. I'm really pleased to be joined today by Veni Debriev. He's a student in the Faculty of Veterinarian Medicine at the University of Forestry, Sofia. He's an alumnus of the Kennedy Lugar Yes program from 2016 until 2017, and he has been actively protesting since the first day of the protests in Bulgaria. I'm also joined by Delaney Hurley, who is an undergraduate at Harvard University studying government, modern Middle Eastern studies, and education policy. During the 2017 to 2018 academic year, she took a gap year in Sofia, Bulgaria, with a scholarship from the U.S. Department of State. She is currently interning at a nonprofit based in Belgrade that specializes in educational work related to strategic nonviolent conflict. Thank you both so much again for being a part of the podcast. Um, and I guess just to start off, we haven't really heard a lot about the protests in Bulgaria, um, American media. Typically, it's just been about Belarus or Hong Kong or Thailand. Um, so can you just describe a bit about what people are protesting and what your story is for joining the protests? The people that are on the streets here are basically very different in both political views and in society. So all walks of life uh, are out there on the streets protesting against the government. and. One of the things that is probably very different from what is happening in Belarus is that we don't really have a organized leader going on and an organized party that is opposition that is leading the protest. It's basically people with more conservative views and people with more liberal views all together joining against corruption in the government. What, um, what are people specifically protesting? What triggered the protests to start? What has been the buildup until this point? So. The trigger, you can say, the the thing that spilled over uh, the edge was there was a really big scandal going on with a private beach, which by law, all beaches in Bulgaria should be uh, public, open to the public, or at least have access by the public to them. 
and a former uh, party leader from one of the more center-right parties had privatized it and had national security guarding it. Uh, so when a liberal politic, Ivanov, who is out of parliament uh, right now, uh, he tried to get access to it by boat and he was kicked out. And that basically started a chain reaction that kind of rolled over to anti-government, anti-corruption protests all over the country. How long has tension been building up? Is this something that's new or has it always been a part of Bulgaria for the past few years? So the tension has been here since as long as I can remember. I've always been told by my parents, by older friends or just older relatives that um, if you want to get high position at work or something like that, you need to have connections. So everything is based off of connections. Corruption here is very, very high. The tension has been here since, as, since at least 10 years going on with this particular cabinet in government so it's not something new it's been going on for a very very long time mm. to add some numerical context to that um, reports have shown that bulgaria loses approximately 11 billion euros each year due to corruption wow. and over 80 percent of bulgarians see corruption as widespread within the country so this isn't just like this really is a widely accepted fact as Benny said is this anger specifically at Borisov, who is now, you said, the prime minister? Or is this um, a general discontent with the entire government? So I would say it's mainly at Borisov right now because he is seen as the face of this system, even though he's not the only one participating in it. And I'm pretty sure he's not the person that's running all of this corruption going on behind the scenes that we don't see. But as a prime minister, as somebody that is in public, that is supposed to speak to the people and that is supposed to be elected by the people, he is seen as the face of this widespread corruption. So I would say most of the protesters are see him as the main um, kind of evil character in the story, but he's not the only one, though. What are some of the demands of the protest? So... The ultimate goal is, since the beginning, it has been the resignation of his whole cabinet and himself too, mm. um, and the resignation of the general prosecutor, Ivan Geshev, which is, in our judiciary system, uh, this position is filled with a lot of, I can say, advantages that can be used by politicians from different walks of life. I'm curious how COVID-19 has sort of influenced both the start of the protests back in early July um, and how COVID-19 has also changed the way protesting has looked um, compared to maybe protests before or like how protests would normally be. So I'll say maybe from the outside, the, the whole situation should people from outside our country are seeing it as, oh, maybe because of the virus, uh, not enough people are protesting, which is not really true. I'd say, in fact, most of the people joined the protest in the first place as a way to kind of release that anger that has been built up from the way the government had handled the virus and the way the quarantine had gone. The way, I would say COVID 
the only difference that I see from what from protests that were before the virus is that people had a lot more energy in the beginning, right after quarantine, and people wearing masks at the protest, but that doesn't really affect the numbers of people that are showing up. So, yeah. Wow. It seems like COVID-19 has had similar effects on protests in many parts of the world in that many people don't have much to do during quarantine except read the news and talk to their friends about what's going on in the world. So there's so there's so much more dialogue about these kinds of issues. And probably more importantly, there are far fewer distractions to prevent you from staying angry about this. Um, mm -hmm. So I would say that's probably a massive contributor to a lot of what we see going on. How has um, the government handled the COVID-19 pandemic? Um, in Bulgaria, I'll say the situation was handed, I wouldn't say it was handed as best as possible. Our country experienced, a, you can say, a very low number of cases. Um, we definitely had our peak that was not very, um, that was not very low, but um, we have had a pretty steady uh, line of um, infected people with the virus uh, throughout the whole summer, even though uh, tourism had uh, was kept going on. So uh, that was good. People were really good with wearing their masks and social distancing. But the thing that maybe uh, pissed off a lot of the people that were also angry at the government for managing it, it was uh, we were basically in full on quarantine with just, I think, less than 50 people infected in the whole country. So that was very um, kind of, I don't know, it was seen as a just too much to, to people. So, yeah. Mm. And I'm curious why you personally wanted to join the protests. Um, and then also Delaney, um, as somebody who's from the U.S., why you decided you wanted to get involved and what that advocacy looked like for you being in the U.S. rather than in Bulgaria. I joined the protests mainly because I've been a witness to the whole um, level of corruption that has been going on in our country. I've seen it on government level. I've seen it on a city council level. I've seen it on even level at a university, a public university, uh, as it is with my case. I've seen it in schools, in high schools. So um, it is all very intertwined and interconnected. It, it kind of, it was too much. So it just happens. And when I saw it happening, I was ready to join in. I was ready to make a change. Yeah, as for me, obviously being overseas has uh, led me to take a very different path from as I would if I were on the ground. Um, while I was studying in Bulgaria, I made friends with many of the people who are out on the streets protesting right now, including Femi and one of our mutual friends. So during the outset of the protests, uh, Veni and our mutual friend were posting a lot about this on social media. And I reached out to them just because obviously we're not really seeing a lot about this in the American news. Um, and I followed it admittedly from a distance for a while simply because it was a wave of peaceful protests. I expressed some support, but I did not become actively involved in advocacy for the protesters until um, just a couple of weeks ago when I was on the phone with um, me and Benny's mutual friend and she told me that Benny had been hurt by the police. And at that point, it just 
not only became personal because someone who was one of my very good friends ended up getting hurt, um, but it marked a clear change in what I saw as the government's response to the protests. It was no longer a lack of action that maybe could turn into something positive in the future if they were pushed enough. It was a direct violent action showing that they were not going to cave to the protesters. Mm. So at that point, um, I started asking a lot of people about what I really could do. And the consistent answer was simply raising awareness because it's not being talked about enough. And if there is awareness, if there are people who become riled up enough about this, then I think that we do have the potential to pressure some international actors to also pressure Bulgaria to make some sort of change. I want to really quickly step back and talk about the evolution of the protests. So did they start out peacefully? And then when did it escalate? And why do you think it escalated? And what happened to you, Veni? So the protests uh, started off as peaceful protests. And uh, I would say mostly 90% of the time they were peaceful, especially during the first couple of weeks. The only thing that was a little bit different maybe from other times was that uh, a lot of the protesters, a couple hundred of them actually stayed protesting 24 seven. So they blockaded major streets uh, in the center of the city, blocking traffic and blocking public transport. So uh, that was something that was seen as very, you can say intimidating to the public. So they were, but again, nobody was getting hurt and no violence was going on. So they were peaceful at that point and they became, became violent right after Borisov decided that he's going to propose constitutional changes for a new constitution during a protest on the 2nd of September, which was called the Great National Uprising. And that was the night that it became pretty violent. And after that, it was, after it was met with a lot of international criticism and um, criticism from our own public figures, uh, it, it was peaceful again, but um, since then it was peaceful. And that was the only night that I can remember that it got really, really bad. But before that, it was it was all peaceful. Nothing, nothing too much, nothing too less. It was just normal protesting. Mm. Did that escalation happen because of violence that was instigated by the police? Um, was there any looting that was happening on behalf of the protesters, although I read that these were actually just rioters that came in um, and tried to create havoc. Exactly how did it unfold? From what I saw as someone that was right there, um, I definitely do agree that a third party uh, rioters came to ignite the protest. Uh, of, co- of course, most of the protesters there never really had the intention of being violent or for looting to happen, which it did not. But after that first clash that happened between those rioters and the police, the majority of the people on the square became violent too with Mm. them because they had all this anger build up and just seeing a water cannon and like maybe 500 policemen against you with their shields advancing, spraying you with pepper spray, that just made people angry, so. Yeah. Benny, I read on that day that the water cannon was brought in, that the police arrested 126 people. Have large-scale arrests of protesters continued after that, even if there haven't been violent clashes, or has that died down as well? 
Uh, that has definitely died down. I do not remember if I've seen any um, arrests happening, like mass arrests happening after that night, mainly because a lot of uh, photos and videos on Facebook that showed police violence and showed the numbers, because in Bulgaria, every policeman has a number on their chest to identify them, um, uh, that showed the numbers of those policemen that committed that unnecessarily violence towards peaceful protesters. So it didn't really happen after that. But from what I've heard from my friends that went on to testify against police violence in police departments and in uh, the regional district of the Ministry of Interior, which is responsible for that, they said that they have been met with very, you can say, um, kind of not caring behavior from the other side. So it really yeah it's been ignored so it sounds to me like the original wave of publicity of showing these videos of police just committing acts of violence um led them to back off temporarily uh, so maybe publicity was effective in that regard but it seems that there is still a risk of police committing these acts of violence again in the future if the conditions ended up being the same as they were on september 3rd uh, does that sound correct to you, Venom? Absolutely. I would say publicity has been real good in terms of um, kind of lowering the amount of mass arrests and police brutality towards protesters, but it definitely hasn't done anything for, a, you can say, a professional investigation to ha has been initiated towards that. So it's all been very, oh yeah, let's not... I don't know, at least as somebody that's there, I feel like the policemen are not arresting us or not spraying us because they're like, we don't want to spray them because we don't want to end up on Facebook or in the news. So, yeah. Mm. I want to take a, a step back um, and ask what the U.S. has done and what other EU countries have done um, about this. So you said after, it was September 10th, that there was the big Grand National Uprising um, that then cause a lot of police violence. And I'm curious since that point, or even before that, what, yeah, what has the U.S. done? Um, have we intervened at all? Will we intervene? And yeah, what do you think the political calculus of the protests are in our relation to it is? So the U.S. Embassy in Bulgaria issued a statement of support for the protesters in very vague terms, saying that they supported the Bulgarian people as they peacefully advocate for increased faith in their democratic system and promote the rule of law, and went on to say that no one was above the law. But they made no specific references to the protesters' demands that um, Borisov and his government sign. And actually because of that ambiguity, uh, Attorney General Geshev tried to spin that statement about no one being above the law um, against the protesters, saying that they weren't above the law either. So U.S. action has been incredibly limited in that sense. Why do you think so? I think that there are four main reasons that the U.S. hasn't really done that much. The first reason is that Trump's general international view seems to leave Bulgaria on its own. The USA's former ambassador to Bulgaria, James Pardue, wrote a fantastic article this week in Politico titled, Bulgaria and Borisov have passed the point of no return. And in it, he said that Bulgaria is unlikely to receive help from the USA as long as Donald Trump is president, citing his 
reticence to promote democracy around the world as his predecessors in the White House have done in the past. And indeed, Trump has previously praised those in the European Union with anti-democratic tendencies, like Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban. And beyond just the lack of attention and acknowledgement of democratic backsliding, I can see how President Trump would view the protests in Bulgaria as the European Union's problem and something that we really shouldn't be getting our hands in. That mental separation from responsibility is really powerful and stands regardless of whether or not the EU actually takes action, which it hasn't. Uh, th that's an entirely separate issue that we should probably get into later. Um, the second reason I see for the United States not intervening is that the American government is honestly suffering from many of the same problems that Bulgarians are protesting. So it would likely look very bad for the Trump administration to criticize Borisov very publicly over these. America has similar attacks on the media. Um, Bulgaria is ranked 111th in the world for press freedoms, by far the worst in the European Union. The United States has had a lot of issues with police brutality, just, um, especially against recent protesters in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement. And there are some questionable things at best going on with democracies, both in the United States and in Bulgaria. Thirdly then, the United States is probably very worried about pushing Bulgaria into Russian, Russia's arms. Here, it's important to understand Bulgaria's precarious positioning between Russia and the West. So no, Bulgaria was never part of the Soviet Union as my parents have messed up on a few times, but it does have notable ties with Russia. Um, Bulgaria gets over 80% of its gas from Russian state-owned corporation Gazprom. And that's obviously really important for current energy affairs. But on a more historic note, Bulgaria was under the control of the Ottoman Empire for about five centuries something that Bulgarians generally seem to resent pretty strongly of Veni. <laughs> do, do you want to shift in there at all? Oh, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, uh, we seen it, it, we see it still as something very, like a very, very dark period of our time. Russia is seen as the main contributor to the liberation of Bulgaria from the Ottoman Empire. So Bulgarians have a strong sense of trust and maybe even a slight feeling of indebtedness towards Russia for that. Mm. Um, at the same time, Bulgaria is part of the EU and it's part of NATO and it's conducted joint military exercises with the United States. So it makes a lot of sense why Pew Research found that 57% of Bulgarians have a favorable view of the United States and 73% of Bulgarians have a favorable view of Russia. So in my opinion, wow. I think that the U.S. is hesitant to be antagonistic towards the Bulgarian government um, out of fear of pushing them closer to Russia as an ally, which is why the U.S. is much more careful about using the full range of its foreign policy tools in Bulgaria as opposed to what it's doing in Belarus right now. And that brings me to in my opinion, the fourth and final reason that I don't think the U.S. has taken much action. The U.S. is currently focusing a lot of its attention on Belarus, and there's comparatively little incentive to push on the Bulgarian front. Uh, so for any listeners who don't know, Belarus is in the midst of month-long protests surrounding the re-election of President Lukashenko. 
who, despite widespread allegations of election rigging, declared victory for a sixth term in office, and Belarusians have been flooding the street pretty much every single day since that announcement. And this is where the situations of Bulgaria and Belarus seem to become incredibly similar. There is corruption in the government, there are widespread demands for resignation, there's police brutality, there's a lot of suppression of journalism. But the responses have been incredibly different. Whereas American Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has said he's deeply concerned about attempts by the government of Belarus to forcibly expel an opposition activist and is seriously considering economic sanctions, which is quite the public condemnation of the country's current political system. We really don't see the same for Bulgaria. It's been, for the most part, radio silence from the US government. And the difference between the two countries and their responses is probably the absence of a strategic incentive for Bulgaria. The protests in Belarus have the potential to remove a very pro-Russian leader from Eastern Europe, which would just categorically be pretty good for the United States. Whereas the Russian-American divide does not play nearly as prominent a role in the Bulgarian protests. Uh, so the United States probably sees it as much less of a flashpoint and a foreign policy priority in that sense. Mm. And this attention on Belarus also probably explains why there isn't as much media coverage of the Bulgarian protests in the United States. Belarusian protest leaders are receiving death threats and human rights groups have uncovered, have uncovered allegations of torture in Belarusian prisons. So. If you're going to write about a protest-ridden country in Eastern Europe that starts with a B, you're probably going to write about the one where there are four new potential headlines every single day. And as Vani talked about, a lot of Bulgaria's problems are very consistent. The corruption has been going on for ages. People come out to protest every single day. So it doesn't seem like a lot of these things are fodder for headlines that a lot of my friends wish they were reading in the United States. And if the American media isn't covering it as much, or even the European media isn't covering it as much, making the people angry and making them demand action from their politicians, then there's no citizen level incentive for the government to take action. So because of this, um, I, that's very broadly why I think that the United States hasn't taken much action. And I think that the only way to pressure them to do so is to have some sort of manufactured pressure uh, to speak up about the abuses that are going on. Yeah, wow, that's really interesting. I mean, I think a really great comparison of the issues that are happening right now with the protests in Belarus and in Bulgaria. I wanted to ask about what level of support the Bulgarian public has for the protests. So I know, Veni, you were saying before that people of all different backgrounds were attending the protests, but I guess nationwide, are these protests looked upon favorably by the people? Or is there still a mixed review as to not only their effectiveness, but in what they're advocating for, um, for the resignation of Borisov? So I would say that even though, even after the violent night of the 2nd of September, um, the majority of the people still support the protests. So I would say, uh, I remember some numbers of 60% and above. Mm. Um, but what I would say is that the media here is, most of the media uh, is still controlled by uh, government backing people. 
So a lot of the way that the protesters are kind of um, seen through media is in a really, really bad light. So uh, we are seen as uh, writers or uh, as uh, people that have uh, no purpose in life, uh, basically went out on the street to scream and to just uh, spend some time with friends uh, and not as something serious as a movement. Uh, so that's why uh, a lot of, um, a, a, bit, a pretty big number of uh, the population here uh, still has some kind of thoughts whether or not to support uh, the movement in the protests as compared to the other ones that are feel very strongly about it. I read a report that around 70% of Bulgarians are in support of the protests, though maybe that's changed after the night of violence. Um, just speaking from an anecdotal perspective, I only started seeing any sort of opposition to the protests within my sphere of friends on social media after two events. So one of them was obviously um, the violence a little bit on both sides. Um, I think that something like 80 police officers were treated for injuries um, after the night when 120 odd people were arrested. So a lot of people were saying, if you attack the police, you should expect to be attacked back. And I took that as a dig at the protesters. Um, but apart from that, uh, there was also in a few headlines in which um, it highlighted Bulgarians who were taking apart um, a very famous street, Brick Bright Brick, uh, in the early 1900s. I think... Veni, maybe you can step in here and help me explain exactly what was going on, uh, where they were moving like the yellow brick road. Oh, yeah. So um, you, basically, uh, we as a very uh, small country, uh, we really appreciate the landmarks that we have that surround us. So um, one of the things that a lot of people became angry about at the protesters was uh, that the city center of Sofia is the streets on there are aligned with yellow bricks that were made in uh, Austria-Hungary like maybe a century and a half ago. Very, very old, um, one of a kind. Uh, they're classified as a, a national legacy, mm -hmm. uh, a national cultural legacy. So they're seen, there's a very few of them in right now in storage and they're not being produced anymore so they're seen as something that is very like a symbol of sophia so when they saw the protesters basically ripping them off of the ground and throwing them at police uh riot police they were the protesters were framed as kind of destroyers of cultural heritage and bulgarian culture so yeah i think that's what you you were talking about that right exactly yeah um and after that, I saw a lot of people saying that this proved that the protesters were being ridiculous and that they didn't have legitimate demands. So it seemed like some people were looking for excuses to shame the protesters, um, much like I think happens in a lot of places. I think that we see the same for Black Lives Matter protesters in the United States, where people who don't support the movement just wait until there's one small headline about rioting or looting and then use that to. Um, smear the entire movement. 
that's really good context. Um, and I wanted to ask uh, you, Delaney, about what you were speaking about before of why maybe the U.S. is reluctant to engage because it could push Bulgaria closer to Russia. Do you think that fear is more regarding the government wanting to tighten their ties with Russia or more of the people's favorability for Russians over the Americans? I would say that that concern is more about pushing the government into Russia's sphere of influence uh, more so than anything else, because the government is the one who negotiates the contracts with Russian gas company Gazprom, and they're the ones who decide uh, whether Russian companies or Western companies are going to have more influence in the country, especially given the level of uh, corruption in terms of who gets what contracts. Mm. Um, in terms of the people, in my opinion, I actually think that the United States taking some sort of stance, even if they didn't go so far as to demand the resignation of Borisov and his entire cabinet, but doing some more things like calling for an investigation into uh, press freedom and corruption and some of the other like lower level demands of the protesters, they would probably be viewed more favorably among the Bulgarian population. Because um, we're seeing that since there's such a high support for these protests overall, I think that people would see the United States as coming in as some sort of like ally, as someone who really supported them if they did this. So I don't think that intervention would push these citizens more into Russia's hands, if anything. Before we dive into the elections, I was wondering if we could go back briefly to some of the constitutional proposals um, that Borisov's government was making. And could you explain why some of them are very controversial? The constitutional changes that are being proposed from this cabinet right now and from Borisov and his party and uh, his alliance in the Bulgarian parliament are very, I would say, and from what I've, what I've heard from other uh, experts on the topic is that they're not, they're, they're very basically unconstitutional based on this current constitution. What he's proposing are major changes to the judiciary system. But the surprising thing is, since one of the one of the things that the protesters wanted was uh, less power in the uh, general prosecutor in the country in the judiciary system, well, uh, it seems like he is doing the total opposite of that um, with his new proposal. Um, he is actually giving up more power to that figure. Uh, he is splitting up uh, the main uh, judiciary councils into two. Um, he is basically dividing and conquering. He's putting up a plan for a divide and conquer in the judiciary system. Uh, the other major changes that he's doing are connected through the, this assembly that in the constitution in the Bulgarian government is called a great national assembly uh, which is basically uh, a parliament that has the sole purpose of writing a constitution this type of assembly has been um created only i think seven or eight times uh it is um a very special kind of parliament a very special kind of assembly and he's proposing major changes to the members that are going to be part of it, he's uh, suggesting a 50-50 system with 50% of the members being uh, majority people voted directly through elections and the other 50% are going to be people from 
this current parliament splitting up their places based on how much majority votes they have currently, which again is uh, only in favor of him and his coalition in parliament. So um, yeah, he is basically blowing a whistle against the wind, as we say here, uh, something that Lukashenko wants also to do. So there's a lot of similarities in our situations with Belarus. So proposing a new constitution with no actual changes is something that is supposed to, I guess, calm down the protesters, but it didn't really work out that way for him. When I talked to one of my friends about this, they mentioned two other things that were slightly alarming, though not necessarily in the vein of corruption. Um, in order to get this new constitution, at least like approved for consideration, uh, Borisov's government had to ally with a small kind of like far right party. And in order to pass the constitution, they had two things that they specifically requested be huh. added. One of them being mandatory military conscription for all Bulgarian yep. adults, which is what? Interesting. <laughs> yeah, Interesting, I forgot about that. Um, yeah. Considering that Bulgaria is part of the European Union and part of NATO and already has one of the highest um, military enrollments like per capita of most countries in the world. Um, so that's one thing. And then second thing, which has alarmed some people, is that in this new constitution, there is a provision stating that marriage is only between a man and a woman. And a woman, uh, yep. The Balkans are obviously not the most LGBT-friendly part of the world, but this has still shocked a lot of people um, because it's kind of coming out of left field. It was not expected. What I just wanted to add to that was, um, I forgot about it. That was basically a condition that this far-right party uh, made to uh, Borisov and his cabinet. So because they need a certain amount of votes to start the process of gathering a great national assembly. Uh, so um, I, I, I definitely, I am definitely opposed to all of those, especially uh, one of the statements, statements that our minister of defense, which again, this person in his cabinet from this far right party in the European Union is saying that, um, we as protesters opposing this new constitution that uh, again, apparently we wanted, are only going to lead Bulgaria towards um, gay marriages, which I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but there is nothing wrong with that. But uh, the, the thing is, it's, it's just very, I don't even know. It, it's just um, um, kind of mind blowing how, 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 this kind of people have been allowed to to join the government in 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 the Ministry of Defense, which is the probably the second most important organ of the government. Yeah, I'm curious specifically these last two additions or changes that Delaney you were mentioning and Vinny you were adding on to why those were proposed. Yeah, what is the I guess political advantage to having those two changes? Um, the only advantage that they do have is that they're in opposition of liberal views, basically. Uh, there's not really any thought about it. Uh, or when uh, journalists ask those exact politicians that proposed those why they were doing that, the only reason they gave is because uh, today's youth is out of line, basically. 
which I translate to myself is that today's youth in Bulgaria is more liberal than they like it to be. And that's the only reason I think uh, they're doing it. And it's funny because um, the exact same opposition, the, the exact same people that proposed those, mandatory uh, military conscription was a thing that happened in Bulgaria uh, until I think ni- uh, 1992, 1993. And those exact same politicians basically went al- around that law and did not participate in that military military conscription but they're really pushing towards it right now so it's kind of hypocritical you can say yeah very political (laughs) leaders dodging conscription sounds oddly familiar yeah yeah it is just it is the the gap between um my generation and the generation after me uh, compared to the generation of our parents is it's very wide mainly because they grew up in the eastern bloc uh having very different views than we do right now and that representation of our views is not proportionate in the government and that's why i i think at least that's why many people go out and on the streets right now yeah that makes sense I wanted to also ask both of you about how elections would unfold in this time, um, because I know one of the demands of the protesters is to hold an elections after the resignation of the prime minister and his cabinet. And how would those unfold? And is COVID-19 an excuse being used by Borisov in order to justify why there should not be an election right now? So I would say that, um, so what we as protesters also demand is an early election out of term because his term is supposed to end in next year during springtime uh and that's when the next election is supposed to happen um i would say he is not really using covid19 as a excuse to uh not put his resignation out um but he did he did say something out of the lines during the early weeks of the protesters that if he resigns and his cabinet resign in this crisis of a time, the country and the government is going to break down. So there, the, the virus is not really being used as an excuse right now. Um, people are more uh, afraid of their vote, uh, their votes being either stolen or uh, not counted or any kind of other involvement in the, abs- the free process of voting. Uh, so uh, yeah, I mean, Early voting is supposed to happen what we want it to happen with uh, machines, uh, with which is really controversial right here. I don't know if uh, Delaney has read anything about it, but is one of the things that has been voted on in Parliament uh, during the past couple of weeks, which is seen as something that will stop vote voter infringement and the buying of votes, as it is as, as, as it is called here. Uh, we have a very, very old-fashioned voting system in Bulgaria. We vote by paper. So um, we don't really have any kind of... Um, we don't even have vote by mail. So, yeah, I mean, what we want as protesters is because that very old system is very uh, risk at being corrupted um, by officials uh, that are counting the votes. Uh, we want the voting to, to happen through machines. So all the votes will be counted as is data that is not connected to the internet, that is offline. 
that can be stored securely and um, be counted uh, fairly. And the people that are elected to be actually counted by the people, not by the one that has more money and the, or the one that has more connections. Mm-hmm. Is that a policy that has come out of the protests or is that just a separate matter that maybe has just been a long time coming? It, it has been discussed for a while now. Um, for the We've been using this since, I think, uh, last year when we, have, uh, when we had the voting for the European Parliament. Uh, that was the first time that voting by machine was uh, an option. Uh, I uh, used that option for, as, as a voter at my station. So that was the first time that it was proposed. The excuse that the official used after uh, the election of European Parliament members uh, was uh, that the machines that are supposed to be used in that voting process are very expensive and uh, that it is very expensive to deliver them to Bulgaria and it is very expensive to uh, teach people how to use them. Mm. So it has been a long conversation it has been a thing that is discussed in Parliament since one month ago, like seriously discussed, but it has not passed uh, a certain solution even today. Have there been any talks of um, election monitoring as something that could decrease voter fraud in the upcoming election? There have been, but people are not very... How can I say this properly? Um, this is We're at this point that we don't really trust anybody that has a official position in the government or any kind of monitoring position when it comes to voting because we know they probably have a relative in the main party. So, I mean, it has been a, a topic of discussion but I would say most people don't really trust it even if it happens. I completely understand that. I've saw firsthand a lot of the distrust in government. Would you say that that distrust would still apply even if election monitors from some third party, like let's say the EU or from the UN came in? Oh, uh, definitely. Um, the, the thing is, Bulgaria is still the one of the most pro-European countries in the Union right now. We have a really strong support uh, support for the European Union and being members of it. But during the past couple of months, we've been very, especially the protesters and the majority of the population has been very disappointed of the union for not addressing it uh, enough or having any kind of solutions to the problem that we have here. So if if there are any officials from the EU, I'm pretty sure uh, that are monitoring the vote, I'm pretty sure people will have trust in them, but until, as, as we've seen what has been happening in the past couple of months in the Union and in the EU Parliament and in the Council of Europe, I, I'm, I highly doubt that they're going to take any measures to help out. Building off of that, um, could you guys describe what the EU has done or hasn't done in response to the protests? The EU hasn't done any official kind of restrictions towards the government. There has been only talk about it, and uh, there is a commission that fights against corruption in the uh, EU Council uh, that has had uh, several hearings uh, from the general prosecutor and from other uh, members of parliament, but no official um, statement from the union has been um, 
kind of sent to the people. Recently, we had uh, this member of European Parliament from Ireland, Claire Daly, um, that had a very strong speech about the Bulgarian corruption uh, and how the Bulgarian Prime Minister Boyko Borisov uh, was smart enough to not target any minorities in the countries, like the Roma minority or the LGBTQ community in the country. So he hasn't really been uh, hit hard with sanctions from the EU like Poland has or Hungary has. So um, we have been, he has been smart enough to leave the minorities alone, but still from other European Union funds and other communities from the country. So, yeah. I did find that um, there was one statement from a spokesperson for the Executive European Commission uh, after the major night of violence in the beginning of this month, in which they said that the use of force must be proportionate. However, they declined to even say if, like, the police in Sofia overstepped by becoming violent with protesters. It was just kind of this vague statement of a principle, very similar to what we saw from the U.S. Embassy in Bulgaria. And unfortunately, that can, as we've seen, can be very easily turned against the people that, in its best intentions, it's intended to prevent. So why hasn't the EU taken any further action on this? Starting off, um, I think that's similar to the United States. The EU is considerably focused on Belarus right now. Uh, this week, they voted overwhelmingly in favor of a resolution to reject the results of um, the August presidential election in Belarus, demanded new elections, and also laid the groundwork to impose sanctions on a lot of officials there, similar to what the United Kingdom has already done. So with all of their attention there, I think it's difficult for them to have an attack on two fronts. Um, but beyond that, there are definitely a couple of other things that seem to be at play. First, Bulgarian members of the European Parliament seem to be divided on the state of the country. Uh, one said that Bulgaria could become the next Poland or Hungary, where governments have swiftly been taking action to silence opposition and consolidate their power. While another says that the situation is a completely controlled internal matter. So there, there are going to be mixed messages that make it difficult for um, the EU to decide exactly which action is legitimate to take. One thing that a lot more people have been paying attention to is the fact that Prime Minister Borisov is from the same party as Angela Merkel and European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. And because of that, they are very unlikely to speak out against one of their most important allies during a time of intense Euroscepticism. Another take that I uh, got from one Bulgarian I talked to, she said, and I quote, Bulgaria's stolen resources due to corruption are half of what bigger European countries steal, but they just hide it better. So some people who are possibly more cynical about the values of the European Union and their actual disapproval of the practices that uh, Borisov's government is being accused of, they're probably going to be much less likely to want to condemn these practices for fear of being hypocritical, similar to how the United States likely has similar fears. The issue, of course, is that the European Union should act because it cares about human rights and it's laid out in its charter and overlooking threats to democracy and human rights in one area simply sets a precedent for further violations, which the European Union really can't afford to do, given the increasing trends of democratic backsliding and consolidation of power and violation of rights that we're seeing elsewhere across the EU.
but it seems like the EU has not been acting on this much lately at all. Um, the EU has still neglected to release a an official condemnation of the effective rule by decree order that has been implemented in Hungary, where uh, Viktor Orban is unilaterally allowed to pass any policy during a state of emergency declared over the coronavirus. So perhaps this isn't just a Bulgaria-specific issue. Perhaps they're afraid to speak out against anybody who is going against democratic norms during this time period. Um, and because of the complicating factors at play with Bulgaria in particular, they are unlikely or at the very least very hesitant to do so. Looking, I guess, ahead in the future, Veni, are you still protesting? How long are the protests projected to continue um, and how will the weather or the changes in schools or work jobs um, complicate that, if at all? So I have not been attending the protests as frequently as I used to do. Um, I've been going on at least um, twice or three times a week, but school in um, fall coming uh, has been uh, has been a challenge for a lot of the protesters since I would say most of them are young people, students uh, that have come to Bulgaria during the summer times because a lot of our students do study abroad uh, and have been active. Uh, and main the main active members of the protests. So uh, September coming is really being a little bit of a downfall for the protesters. Uh, we've seen uh, kind of a decrease in the numbers of people attending there. I'll I'll definitely uh, be not stopping my I'll definitely not not stopping the protesting, but we'll see. I I, I really don't know how this is going to uh, go in the end of the year so yeah I don't know I don't really know how to frame it it's just very uncertain everything is really uncertain right now yeah one thing I will note that could be um, reason for optimism is that when the Hong Kong protests were in their first wave during 2019 the government was betting on the fact that when students went back to school uh, the protests were going to subside solely because a lot of the young people who were behind the movement were no longer going to have the free time to take to the streets. And the protests actually continued in full force after that. So, of any that many students like you are going to continue remaining dedicated to the cause and that more people are going to take up the torch, I, so to say. I certainly hope so. Um, I really hope... Um, a scene that has already happened in uh, Bulgarian history uh, to repeat itself is um, from the protest, anti-government protests in 2013, uh, when students from the largest university in Bulgaria and the oldest one, Sofia University, uh, basically blockaded the whole university, locked themselves up inside the university for a couple of weeks. Uh, and I'm pretty sure it was almost a month until the government resigned. I really hope something like that happens and protesters uh, that are from younger groups like students and high school students uh, keep on their participation in them. But one of the main reasons that I, I, I think at least is that participations in the protest is lower than before is most of our students, as I said, are leaving the country. Uh, living abroad, studying abroad, and the only reason they come here is because of summer. So as soon as summer ends, 
most of them are going to be back at their uh, homes abroad. And we're definitely going to see a very, a very low number compared to July. Yeah. For people both inside of Bulgaria um, and especially people in the U.S., um, people like me, what is the best way um, that you both see us supporting the protests in Bulgaria in addition to just learning more about them? Well, um, there's not really a lot of um, funding that you can uh, that you can do because, as I said, the protests are the protests are not really organized by a one party. Uh, it is uh, a very much of a people a people's thing. Uh, there's not a single organization that uh, does the organizing of the people. It's more of a we're going to show up and. Uh, the best thing I can think of and what I've told my friends to do is just spread the word around the world because um, the only way that uh, pressure can be applied at this point is from the outside. So uh, pressure from abroad, pressure from foreign governments is the only thing that can probably solve our issues here. Yeah, I'll make some suggestions here, but Benny, feel free to like step in if you disagree. Um, I think that spreading awareness is a very general umbrella term, and it may be helpful for some people to know specifically which methods of that can be most helpful. So if people not only educate themselves, but also make a concerted effort to post more resources for others within their networks to learn about the protests, um, that can be incredibly helpful, especially if you have friends within the European Union who can exert pressure domestically um, upon their politicians to take some sort of EU-wide action against the Borisov government. That would definitely be something that can be helpful. Something else just over here in the United States, I suppose that making this a bigger issue, something that you talk to your politicians about, something that you try to get in major American news sources um, would help considerably because that's what's going to either get people angry and talk to their politicians or just get politicians to know about it in the first place. So for example, we see a decent number of articles about Bulgaria in Politico Europe, but none of them show up on the normal Politico site. So we know that it is within their power and with it is on their radar screen, but they don't think that it is something that Americans are going to be interested in. Um, so changing that is definitely something that we can try to do. I think those are all really good suggestions um, and really important too, um, especially since, as I, as I mentioned before, I think the Balkans tend to be overlooked in the context of Europe because they don't play. A lot of the Balkan countries are not a part of the EU um, and perhaps they're not as economically valuable for the US. But as you said, I think that the precedents that are set in the way that the US and the EU responds to these protests um, will have an impact in Europe, but I think around the world and how we as citizens of this, this world are going to keep governments and violators of human rights accountable. Thank you so much again, Venny and Delaney, for taking the time to talk with me about the Bulgarian protests. And we hope that you all learned something too from our conversation. After recording our podcast, Delaney got back in touch with me and told me that there is, in fact, an organization that you can directly donate to in order to support the protesters in what is coming on 100 days of protests. Here's her message. Although the protests are not entirely centralized, as Benny said, 
There are several organizations playing a role that you can help. One of my friends forwarded to me a Facebook page representing one of the largest organizations behind the protests called Iniciativa Pragosavia Vasadaseki, the Justice for All Initiative, and they're now accepting donations via PayPal. If you want to check them out, you can find them on Facebook, where their page is almost 85,000 likes. And of course, we'll put the links in the description so you can go from there. The initiative's goals are to use this money for protest organizations in different cities, rent out rooms for meetings, create and give out giant posters and flags to protesters, pay for staff and travel expenses, and generally recruit more people nationwide. They have a link to donate to them on the main page of their website, so I encourage all of you to check it out. Further reading about Bulgaria will be included in our show's show notes. To keep human rights close to your home, subscribe to The Rights Pod wherever you get your podcasts. The views reflected in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Stanford Center for Human Rights.